It's a great pleasure to be back here at the Mershon Center. Uh, Sean Kay, my friend who had a lot to do with getting me here, reminded me that uh, I was last here about uh, 25 years ago, which makes me feel very ancient uh, indeed. Uh, and if any of you uh, out there remember my being here 25 years ago, um, my sympathies. <laughs> I'm actually going to probably, uh, in the spirit uh, that nothing fundamental changes that much in the world, touch on a couple of subjects I probably touched on then in the course of these remarks. It's always appropriate at the beginning of a lecture, which is a memoriam uh, to a colleague of the people that I'm speaking to, uh, to say something about that person. But uh, I do so uh, much more than for reasons of protocol uh, and courtesy because I, too, uh, was a friend and colleague of Joe Cruzel's. Like a lot of you, uh, I admired him greatly, and I learned a lot from him. While I was never in his classroom, I felt that he was a teacher of mine. And I know that uh, Gail has been able to make some of the Cruzel lectures in the past. I wouldn't be surprised if she's got some friends here in this room, and I would ask you to please convey to her my deepest, deepest regards. I think about her often. I've had some memorable experiences in my life, including during my period of public service, uh, none more memorable and certainly none sadder than a Saturday morning in August of 1995 when I was with my family, uh, getting a little bit of a weekend to ourselves, we hoped. And I was tracked down by the State, State Department Operations Center and told to get to a secure telephone line, which I was able to do, to join in a conference call with President Clinton when Dick Holbrook got on the line and reported to us on the tragic accident on the road to Sarajevo that took Joe's life along with Nelson Drew's and Bob Fraser's. And then a few days later, uh, because Secretary Christopher was uh, on the road, as often with him, looking for peace in the Middle East, I was the acting Secretary of State and was out at Andrews Air Force Base when Joe and his two comrades came home in caskets. Uh, obviously, knowing that I was going to have the honor of trying to share some thoughts with you and enter into a discussion with you under the aegis of the Cruzel Lecture, I've been giving some thought to Joe and what he meant, not just to me, but to our nation and to our world. And I was talking to Sean Kay about this the other day, and Sean had a great line about Joe Cruzel. He said he was a nuts and bolts kind of guy, which is not maybe a standard compliment to pay uh, an academic or a scholar. But Sean meant it uh, very much as a compliment. And as soon as the phrase came out of Sean's mouth, I knew exactly what he meant. It meant that what Joe really cared about 
was how the real world worked and how to work on the machinery of international politics so that the real world will work better. He was, of course, a master of political theory and a first-rate scholar and teacher. But he was also a pragmatist who believed that a secure, peaceful international system is based on structures and that those structures, in turn, are based on sound architectural principles. And the nuts and the bolts have to be in the right place and they have to be screwed in tight. And he believed that it is both the opportunity and the obligation of the United States to be the master builder of those structures. Now, in a couple of minutes, I'm going to try to relate that theme in Joe's professional work uh, to the world today and, indeed, the world tomorrow, and also to the advertised uh, topic of my lecture. But first, I'm going to ask all of you to join me in something that I think you will find fairly easy to do, and that is to cast our minds back over the past 60 years and look about 5,000 miles to the east of here to the continent of Europe. For many Americans, not all Americans, but for many Americans, that's where our ancestors came from. But for all Americans, and I do mean all Americans, it's also where many of our values and our political principles came from. Our founding fathers were children of the Enlightenment. They were all intimately familiar with and admiring of the writings of Locke, Hume, and Leibniz, and Montesquieu, and Rousseau, and Immanuel Kant. They understood, having come from that political culture, the way in which the sovereignty of the citizenry of a country and, indeed, the sovereignty of the individual citizen should prevail over the sovereignty of a king or an emperor or, indeed, a leader of any title. That was a European idea. And so was the system of checks and balances. And so was the idea of federalism. And so was the idea of international law. And so was the dream of a democratic peace and a rule-based international order. Yet Europe, while bestowing these intellectual and political blessings on the world, including the New World, was also cursed. It was cursed by vengeful nationalism and rapacious imperialism. And, of course, it was cursed by war. And of all the bloody centuries of European history, there's no question what the bloodiest was. It was the 20th century. But the 20th century was also kind of the ultimate 
bad news, good news story. The first half of the last century was not just bad news, it was the worst news ever. In the course of less than 50 years, that big hunk of real estate that we call Europe produced two world wars, two virulent totalitarian ideologies, fascism and communism, multiple genocides, the Holocaust, and a Cold War that brought the planet to the brink of thermonuclear cataclysm. It's hard to imagine a worse record than that. And yet then some good news kicked in. And with some help from Kathy, and I appreciate your letting me test my luck here, I brought along a couple of slides to illustrate what happened. Let me see if I can do this all by myself. <laughs> okay, can the lights come down a little bit? Okay. So far, so good. That's a map of what Europe looked like in 1942. And if that's not a snapshot of a truly hopeless situation, I don't know what is. Yet that crooked cross there, the swastika, which the Nazis in their bizarre delusion of what Arianism meant, borrowed, of course, from the Jain religion and from South Asia, that emblem ended up where they hoped it was going to be the emblem for the next millennium, and it ended up on the ash heap of history within three years. Uh, I don't know where my uh, pointer is. Where's my pointer? Now, I didn't get a, I didn't get a lesson in how to, how to work this. Maybe I can just walk over and... How does it work? How do you turn it on? I'll just do it this way. This is where my dad was, right over here, while all that was going on. Getting ready to do something about what had happened to the rest of that map. If you can make it work for the next time, I'm, I'm not tall enough to, uh, to do any other pointing that I have to do. Now, it is not, I mentioned my father not just because I'm proud of what he did in World War II and since, but because of what it illustrates about what happened next. It's not boasting. It's simply a matter of fact that it was because the United States threw itself into that war that the threat posed by uh, the original uh, axis of evil uh, was defeated. And in a relatively short period of time, we, along the, with the Europeans, were able to redraw the map of Europe so that it looked like this. Now, there's obviously both good news and bad news on that map as well. What is in red and what is marked by the hammer and sickle uh, went into 
a long period of political darkness. But on the other side, the western side of the Iron Curtain, good things began to happen. One of the most important of the good things that happened was that historical animosities, and particularly the animosity between Germany and France, were laid to rest. And instead of arming for another war, which had been the pattern over the centuries, Western Europe threw its energies into restoration, economic development, political reconciliation, and most important, the building of a new structure, namely this. The European Union, 27 countries that under that flag are conducting today, as they have been for many years, what is unquestionably the most ambitious, promising experiment in supranational governance in history and the most promising experiment in the world today. And meanwhile, of course, the hammer and sickle has joined the swastika on the ash heap of history. And former Soviet republics and satellites are now members of the European Union. And once again, none of that would have been possible without the United States and the steady, skillful way that it used its combination of military might, diplomacy, and championship of political, liberal political values. So today, Europe, which was for so much of its history a killing field, is now a zone of peace. And it's not just a zone of peace unto itself. It's also exerting a kind of gravitational pull of the most benign sort on those countries to the east that used to be part of the Soviet Empire. Now, I've got just one more slide to show you, and I warn you in advance that it's not going to be instantly quite as easy uh, to take in. It's uh, not a map, and it's not a solar system. It's not a very complex molecule. It's a Venn diagram or a schematic organization chart for uh, what is happening in Europe now and has been going on for several years. And by the way, if any of you are interested or masochistic enough to want to study it closely, I did actually bring some extra copies of this along with me. Producing this map, by the way, is beyond anything in my computer uh, skills or my computer. I actually commissioned this from the Central Intelligence Agency <laughs> when I was in the uh, Department of State. And our nickname for it was the Euromess chart. And I think you can see why. But I'm showing it to you for a purpose. Let me just explain the basic point. You don't have to pay a lot of attention to the 17 different organizations that are uh, represented here. 
Uh, and by the way, that list is uh, incomplete because there have been new ones even since uh, the Euro mess chart was first put together. What's important about all of these ellipses and squares and so forth and so on is that they illustrate a point that you've got these different organizations with different functions, different missions, different memberships, but they overlap. And they just don't overlap in the sense that some countries belong to multiple ones. They also overlap in a functional sense that they are self-reinforcing uh, and mutually reinforcing. And another key point is that the United States is directly responsible for what I would contend is the enabling institution on this list. What do I do? Get this, okay. All right, and I'm referring, of course, to NATO. Uh, and that's why the membership of NATO is, uh, is darker than the rest. That is kind of, as it were, the nucleus of this very, very complicated uh, atom. But the United States is also indirectly responsible for many of those other organizations that are represented on there, including some, like the most important of the other organizations, the European Union, of which the United States is not even a member. The European Union came into existence essentially because the Truman administration said to the Europeans, we saved you yet again, twice in one century, and we're not going to keep doing this unless you people get your act together and start creating things like a European Commission uh, rather than getting ready to have a war every 10 years. Now, let me say one last thing about uh, this chart. It's a memorial to Joe Krusel because he believed profoundly in an architectural system of precisely this kind. And during his time in government, he helped build this system very specifically. He was one of the masterminds behind two of the organizations represented here. Rick mentioned this uh, at the outset. And those are the Partnership for Peace, which has made it its business uh, for over 15 years now to find ways of systematizing and routinizing security and military cooperation between NATO and Warsaw Pact members. And also, Joe was very much involved, and I went to, him, uh, went to meetings frequently with him, of this thing, the EAPC, the Euro-American, uh, I'm sorry, the Euro-Atlantic uh, Partnership Council, which is the political wing uh, of the uh, Partnership for Peace. Now, you're all familiar, of course, with the famous distinction between, by another Joe, Joe Nye, the distinction between hard power and soft power. Hard power is the U.S.'s ability to get its way by force or the threat of force, while soft power is its ability to get its way by persuasion, friendly or at least non-coercive persuasion, i.e. by diplomacy, and also by example and by the universal appeal of our values and institutions 
our ability to use our economic clout, not just for the benefit of our own country, but for others as well, and by our overall high reputation around the world for living up to a phrase that's in the first sentence of the De Declaration of Independence, and that is a promise that the United States would be based on, and I quote, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind, which I think is a part of the bedrock of our legitimacy as a leader in the eyes of the world. Now, Joe, of course, worked in a five-sided building on the south side of the Potomac River that specializes in hard power. Yet, like the very best of the very good people who go to work in the Pentagon every day, whether they wear uniforms or whether they wear civilian clothes like Joe Krusel and Bill Perry, who preceded me to this podium, they believe very much that a successful foreign and defense policy depend on combining hard power and soft power. They believe in diplomacy backed by force and, when necessary, force backed by diplomacy. And, indeed, Joe died when the latter was necessary. He died not as a soldier, but as a diplomat. So now, with all this mind-boggling, but I think politically beautiful piece of artwork still on the screen, let me take the point that I'm trying to make from a regional level to a global level. This chart captures one of the most important and positive features of international politics in the second half of the 20th century. And we have to hope in the 21st century as well, namely that it is an architectural system based on structures that buttress and complement each other, with the United States as the architect-in-chief, including at the level of concept and support and inspiration for structures like the EU, of which the United States is not going to be a member. This kind of arrangement not only has worked very well for Europe, but it can serve as a model for other parts of the world uh, as well. Now, unfortunately, if I had charts to show you representing other regions of the world, those charts would be much simpler. There could be one for the Far East, for example, that would have maybe three overlapping uh, ellipses. Uh, there's Sark and Sadek and South Asia and in Africa. West Western Hemisphere has some groupings, uh, none as complicated uh, as this, however. Uh, and if I had a chart to show you for the greater Middle East, it would look like this. And maybe you could help me with that uh, slide that I'm looking for. That. That's. <laughs> Thank you. We're, we're going to get this down so we, when we take it on the road, it'll be dynamite. <laughs> the point being, the degree of stability, peace, prosperity, and uh, healthy democracy that you find in a region is likely to be uh, 
inversely proportional to the simplicity of the chart or directly proportional to the complexity of the chart. And one way uh, to think about the kind of world that we should be moving towards <coughs> is that someday I would need a much bigger screen in order to show you a globo mess chart in which all parts of the world would be tied into each other in the way that those organizations mesh together uh, in Europe. And that, by the way, was, I think, very much a vision that the first President Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, had in mind when he became the first person to occupy the White House after the end of the Cold War. And both the first President Bush and the president that Joe Krusel and I worked for, Bill Clinton, felt that they were beginning to make some progress in, as it were, scaling up what was happening to Europe and doing so on a global basis. Uh, Bush 41, for example, in initiated the Madrid peace process, which brought the Russians into the ongoing diplomatic enterprise involving the Arab-Israeli crisis. He assembled a vast coalition with the full support of the United Nations when it became necessary to apply hard power against Saddam Hussein in the first Iraq war. He united the two Germanys, East and West, in NATO, thereby laying the ground for President Clinton's and Joe Krusel's expansion of NATO to include other former Warsaw Pact countries. President Clinton went on to do some things of his own, and we can bring up the lights now. You'll be glad to know no more charts. President Clinton uh, added a couple of features of his own. He beefed up the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum and supported the empowerment and expansion of the uh, Asian ASEAN Regional Forum. Uh, he converted the G7 into the G8, and in all of the cases I just mentioned, making sure to include Russia in those expansions. Then something consequential, and to put it mildly, very complicating happened. George W. Bush assumed the presidency of the United States. He represented and acted upon a profound disconnect with all 11 of his predecessors six Democrats and five Republicans going back to FDR. And by the way, of course, thereby repudiating much of the legacy of his own father. More than any of the occupants of the White House who came before the current President Bush, he came into office skeptical of international organizations, international law, international treaties, international alliances. He was skeptical about the very concept of an architectural, rule-based, consensual world order, and indeed skeptical about the craft of diplomacy itself. The first nine months of his administration were characterized by the withdrawal from and the shredding, cancellation, unsigning of a whole raft of treaties and agreements, and I'll name just a few. There are probably include some of the ones that I talked about here 25 years ago. The ABM Treaty, the Strategic Arms Reduction Talks, 
Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and, of course, the Kyoto Protocol on Climate Change and the International Criminal Court. And that's only a very partial list. That was in the first nine months. Then came 9-11. To make a long, sad, and very familiar story short, President Bush took what was an opportunity to unite the world behind the United States in a just war against the Taliban and squandered that opportunity by treating 9-11 instead as a pretext for waging a dubious and disastrous war against Iraq. More generally, he systematically and repeatedly dissed the European Union and the United Nations. And I can tell you that I know a lot of American officials who work today for or with the 17 organizations represented on that chart. And I can assure you that by and large, they are a demoralized and discouraged lot. Also, during the course of the last six and a half, nearly seven years, America's standing in the eyes of the world has plummeted further than we have ever seen, not just in our lifetimes, but ever. The polls on this are absolutely indisputable. And I spend a lot of my time on the road abroad, and I can tell you that I hear it all the time, and I hear it most forcefully from our best friends. Now, the damage was largely done during the first term. In President Bush's second term, there has been some restoration of what I would call, approvingly, traditional American internationalism. He's reinstated diplomacy, especially in dealing with the threats of Iran and North Korea's nuclear weapons program, although every week we seem to get another reminder that there are some in the administration who think that soft power is not the way to go, particularly with regard to Iran. But overall, he has allowed Dr. Rice to give diplomacy more of a chance than he ever gave her predecessor, Colin Powell. Now, while I think these bits of self-correction, which is or course correction, which is what I would call them, have been very welcome. They do not yet constitute anything like the massive repair work that is going to be necessary if the United States uh, is going to be able to resume successful pursuit of its interests uh, in the world. One way to look at it is this way. American foreign policy for nearly a hundred years can be seen as a great experiment in multilateralism, in working with others to enable the human community to govern itself peacefully. But for the past six years and eight months and 19 days since President Bush's inauguration, what we've been seeing is an experiment in unilateralism, and it has failed. And it's almost universally been seen to have failed, including by many, though not all, in Washington. When Mr. Bush's successor takes the oath of office on January 20th, 2009, 469 days from today, whichever party, whichever gender, 
is represented by that president, he or she will face a challenge unique in the annals of the American presidency. He or she will instantly be responsible for dealing with a foreign policy challenge of unprecedented difficulty, danger, and complexity. Now, front and center, of course, will be the continuing morass in Iraq, a failed state of the U.S.'s own making and a source of instability in a strategically vital region. Whatever course the 44th President of the United States chooses with regard to Iraq, the United States is going to need help from an enfeebled United Nations, from a NATO that has been badly wounded in Afghanistan, from a European Union that will be nursing grievances against the United States even as it tries to patch up its own internal differences. The incoming administration is going to have to use both its grace period with the world and its honeymoon with the Congress to demonstrate quickly and dramatically that the last eight years were an aberration and that respect for international law, treaties, and institutions is firmly restored as part of the bedrock of American foreign policy. To send the strongest possible signal to that effect, I believe that the next president should, within days after coming into office, affirm full adherence to the Geneva and UN torture conventions, restore the right of habeas corpus for U.S.-held detainees, and re-sign the treaty which the Bush administration unsigned in 2002 that created the International Criminal Court. Now, Iraq will loom so large that it will be difficult to devote sufficient attention, energy, and political capital to other issues. But there are two other issues that absolutely demand attention. We have a saying in Washington that the urgent tends to drive out the merely very important. And I would contend that that must not happen in the case of the new wave that we face of nuclear proliferation and also the fast approaching tipping point that we face in climate change. Keeping those two disasters at bay demands inter international cooperation on a scale and with a degree of efficacy far beyond anything that the world has even attempted, much less achieved to date. And for three reasons, the United States bears a special responsibility both for those problems and for their solution. First, we are the most heavily armed nuclear weapons state. Second, we are the largest producer of greenhouse gases. And third, we are the only country that has the capacity to lead the multilateral effort necessary to cope with both those challenges. In combating proliferation, the new administration should reinstate the premise of the ABM Treaty. It should return to the negotiating table on strategic arms reductions, something that we are obligated, by the way, to do under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And we should undo the colossal error that the Senate made eight years ago when it refused to ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which is to say we should put the CTBT back on track 
towards ratification. And we should engage all countries, including Iran and North Korea, and that means leaving regime change to the Iranian and North Korean people. And we should also engage India and Pakistan in a crash effort to rescue the non-proliferation treaty from the danger of total unraveling, which it faces today. Now, heading off catastrophe in climate change is harder, not least because it will be expensive, and it's going to require sacrifice on the part of all of us, and therefore require massive exertion of political will and massive expenditure of political capital by our leaders, first and foremost the next president. Kyoto is going to expire in 2012. That means that the next president is going to have less than four years to play a decisive role in the design of an effective successor regime. And the United States will have to do that both by diplomacy and by example, because only if America passes legislation to impose stringent limits on itself and offers other countries, especially developing ones, substantial incentives to be part of a global effort will Kyoto be replaced by an accord that mandates universal reductions in greenhouse gases. Now, I realize that it's asking a great deal of the next president to do all this, but it's not asking too much, given the stakes. Picking the right person to rise to that challenge is in fact, a challenge for each of us individually, as citizens and as voters. And that's why 2008 is truly the election of the century. I might say, in closing, that it's particularly a challenge to you all as Ohioans, since, <laughs> as you know very well, you folks seem to have a way of picking the next president of the United States. In the last 200 years, since 1804, Ohio, Ohioans have voted for the winning candidate 82% of the time. No Republican has ever won the presidency without Ohio, and only two Democrats have done so since 1900, FDR and JFK, and you may recall that the latter case was something of a squeaker. George W. Bush saw you folks as so critical to his bid in 2004 for re-election that he came up here and campaigned on election day itself and spent several hours making get-out-the-vote calls from GOP headquarters on South Fifth Street in German Village, just three miles from here. Next election day is November 4th, 2008. That means we've got 392 days to make up our minds, and to do so, let's hope, on the basis not of partisan preference, but on the basis of clear-headed understanding of the issues on our part and on the part of the candidates. That requires not name-calling and attack ads, but probing discussion and civil debate. And what's a better place to engage in that kind of activity than a university. So with that, I turn the discussion over to you. Thank you very much.
Yeah, um, you mentioned that the uh, that the organizations in uh, Western Europe were exercising a benign gravitational pull uh, on those nations to the east. Would you include Russia in, uh, in this as well? Insofar as Russia is a singular noun, no. No. And that is a huge problem. And I'm going to invoke his name again, one that Joe Krusel and Bill Perry and a lot of the rest of us and I spent a lot of time talking about. Russia today is going through a period of feeling its oats, feeling it does not need to knock on the door of Western institutions. And there are a lot of Russians, including powerful ones, who are exploiting the sentiment in the masses uh, to the effect that NATO is a continuing threat uh, to Russia. So that is a huge challenge. It was not always thus, and I don't think it always has to be thus. What we have to hope for is that over time, through the workings of the NATO-Russia Council, a mechanism that was established in the Clinton administration and has been kind of fine-tuned in the Bush administration, that the Russian military will come to see that there is benefit for them in cooperating with NATO on a variety of issues, including conceivably even missile defense. The current U.S. ambassador to NATO, Victoria Nuland, uh, was a very close associate of mine uh, in the 90s and happens to be, along with her colleagues in the North Atlantic Council in Washington today. And I saw her yesterday, and we talked about this, and I'm not divulging anything that she hasn't said publicly, and that is that beneath the surface, uh, if you can get beyond uh, the static and the propaganda surrounding this issue, there is, in fact, a lot of good work going on between the two militaries. And that has to happen between Russia and the EU uh, as well. But, there, but as for that gravitational pull, I've spent a lot of time in uh, the 14 other former republics of the USSR. And most of them, uh, certainly not Mr. Lukashenko in Belarus, but most of them feel that gravitational pull very, very much. The country I know best, perhaps, or the two I know best are Ukraine and Georgia. Georgia, in particular, desperately wants to get into NATO. And it'll be a long time before it does, but it, that aspiration must be kept alive so that Georgia continues to evolve as a normal, pluralistic uh, democracy. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Rick, you, you, you call on people. You mentioned the European Union. You called it uh, the greatest experiment in the world today. Uh, what are your thoughts on North America, the Americas, and transatlantic region? Do you think that, that any of these three would ever follow the supranational example of the European Union and under what conditions? One uh, footnote, and I know I'm surrounded by historians and political scientists, and I'm humbled by that. Uh, I'm wandering into an area uh, where many of you are, are experts. Even in Europe, 
the word supranationalism, which connotes, of course, that there is an authority higher than that of uh, the governing authority of a sovereign nation, is controversial. And uh, Europeans, when they get together uh, to talk about EU, the EU, uh, divide between those who unabashedly use the word supranationalism and those who prefer uh, intergovernmental to supranational. This issue of sovereignty is incredibly sensitive. And I would argue that uh, while all nearly 200 nation states represented in the United Nations take their sovereignty very seriously, there are perhaps three that are the sovereignty superhawks, and that is China, India, and the United States. So uh, the very idea of of us being part of a supranational body or arrangement is uh, so radioactive uh, politically that I think it behooves those who want to continue the work that FDR and Harry Truman started in the late 40s are going to have to kind of talk around that point. The fact of the matter is uh, that we are now already, we the United States, in many aspects of our relationship with the world generally and with our immediate neighbors, Canada and Mexico, uh, making a virtue uh, out of a necessity, which is living with the porousness of borders and the need for international laws and rules that all countries will abide by. But it, uh, we will not move as fast in that direction. You could argue that we don't have to move as fast in that direction since we haven't made it a habit of going to war against Canada and Mexico. It's been a long time since we did that. Supranationalism and, uh, you know, it was Winston Churchill who first came up with the idea of a British-French Union and then a European Union, and it was because of the, the immediate history of warfare. I think the overall directionality, though, uh, we will be part of, and we will be a leader of. Yeah, would you talk a bit more about the proliferation thing that you obviously consider being preeminent issue? Uh, if Iran, uh, Iran's nuclear development can't be stopped by lesser means, would you advocate this military force to stop it? Well, let me take the latter question first and then say a word or two about the... Um, about the, um, I'm just making, counting up a couple of countries here to come back to. I literally cannot imagine a circumstance in which it would be prudent and efficacious for us to use military force to deal with Iran's incipient nuclear weapons capability. I'm picking my words carefully, and I mean them sincerely. Uh, Were I able to imagine a circumstance where that would be effective, where it would accomplish, you know, Clausewitz was right. War is the conduct of policy by other means. And if war will accomplish the policy intention, then it has to be considered. But in every scenario I have seen, the result of an attack, whether it's a so-called surgical uh, strike against certain facilities, nobody that I trust, and I know a lot of people in this business, believes that we can get 
all of Iran's capability. What we can do and will do is kill a lot of Iranians and turn not just that country, but that whole region into a hornet's nest. And I think that if uh, one set of advisors were to come to President Bush and say, Iran is getting too close, we know we can hit this, this, and this, let's do it, uh, the President's military advisors, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, would say, of course we will carry out our orders, Mr. Commander-in-Chief, but we just want to tell you that we think that whatever chance we have of salvaging uh, something other than a disaster from what is now Iraq will go down the drain if we start another war uh, in uh, the region. Now, that's pretty bleak. And, of course, uh, if I were in my old capacity, I would always have to say, well, we can't take any options off the table because you never want your potential or actual enemy to assume that that option of force is off the table. I'm just telling you, speaking in a private capacity, I don't see any options that would work. What I do think might work, however, is uh, coordinated diplomacy between the United States, the European Troika, the UK, Germany, and France, and Russia, those countries, to continue to put together a package of carrots and sticks that will uh, induce an Iranian leadership, and by the way, the Iranian leadership is not, uh, the, the ugliest and most visible manifestation of it is, of course, President Ahmadinejad, but there's more to the Iranian leadership than just him, thank God, uh, or inshallah. Uh, and the Iranian leadership will play the following game. They will play the game of Zeno's paradox. They will keep coming closer and closer to that threshold but not close the distance completely, and we can keep them in the NPT. I even think that uh, thanks to Dr. Rice and particularly Chris Hill, who, by the way, was a very, very close friend and colleague of Joe Kruzel's as well, and if Gail had been here today, Chris wanted me to give her a hug. Those were my instructions. Chris Hill has been able to achieve a prodigy of diplomacy by getting the North Koreans to back off as much as they already have on their nuclear weapons program, and it's even conceivable that we may get them back across the line into the NPT. But we need to do that. My concern about the NPT is the following. The Nonproliferation Treaty was a deal proposed by Dwight David Eisenhower way back in the 50s, and it was essentially some of us big powers are going to have nuclear weapons. He was hoping it would be like three. Uh, and we'll make a deal with the rest of the world, which is we will, over time, reduce and eventually eliminate our nuclear weapons capability. And if you all will forego the nuclear option, we will help you develop nuclear technology for peaceful means. Okay. Took a while to get going. By the time the NPT kicked in, which is in 1970, there were five. They happened to be the permanent five members of the Security Council. The United States, France, the UK, Russia, and China. But in addition to that, we have both India and Pakistan. Now, not in the NPT, but nuclear weapon states. There's a presumption that Israel neither confirms nor denies that it has a nuclear weapons capability. And North Korea has tested a nuclear weapon. This thing is coming unraveled. 
and uh, it is going to take heroic effort on the part of the next administration uh, to do something about that. Jack Kennedy, both when he was in the debates with Nixon and, uh, and then later, not long before he was assassinated, made a prediction on one, I can't remember exactly, he either said within 10 years there are going to be 15 nuclear weapon states or within 15 years there are going to be 10 or maybe said both on different occasions. My fear is that his prediction will turn out to be right. He just had the time frame wrong. And I think we've got a matter of a couple of years uh, to put a cork in that bottle. Can I just clarify then, if the only way to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons uh, was to bomb them, and if the bombing were proved to be feasible, you would then go along with it despite the hornet's nest and despite the dead Iran's uranium. Is that correct? Well, you got, there were two or three ifs there. I don't accept the premise of the question. Uh, if I could be persuaded that using military force against Iran would eliminate the Iranian nuclear threat and not trigger consequences that would be at least as bad as the looming Iranian nuclear threat, then I would say to the President of the United States, you should consider that option. But I cannot see either of those conditions being met. Right. There has to be more. That's still up. <laughs> there has to be more that's nascent there, organization, relationship, something that we could expect the next president to build on. What are those? Well, it's a great question. And I'm basically a journalist at heart and therefore guilty occasionally of uh, oversimplification. The Middle East slide uh, isn't a total blank piece of uh, paper. You have the uh, uh, Organization of Islamic States, which is not nothing. Uh, you have a bilateral uh, security relationship, uh, between, which is a one-way security relationship, between the United States and Israel. We have taken responsibility for uh, defending uh, Israel when it faces an existential threat. Moreover, uh, and Victoria Newland and her colleagues at uh, NATO have done really terrific work on this, and I think one reason it's been so successful and promising is it hasn't gotten much attention. They've uh, set up a, a system of partnerships with uh, Arab states along uh, the coast of uh, North Africa and also uh, with Israel and some of the uh, countries of the uh, Gulf region. Very, very quiet, consultative things. Uh, those of you who know Israel or Israeli politics may know the name Yossi Balin, uh, who has been a friend of mine for some years. He was my counterpart when he was the uh, uh, Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs of Israel. And he's had the idea for years of a Middle Eastern OSCE. That's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's one of the, one of the larger... I guess maybe it's it's the largest it's uh, of the uh, of the circles on this map uh, on this chart, and if you could get a solution to the Arab-Israeli 
conflict. Then, maybe not this, but something quite robust uh, would be uh, possible. But you have that one nut that nobody's figured out yet how to crack that keeps uh, that, from, that from happening. Well, you're, abso you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I just associate myself with your description of what uh, Russia is doing. It's uh, doing everything it can to reassert influence over what it calls the new abroad, which is to say the other former republics of the USSR, and they're using fair means and foul. Uh, the economies of those countries were so deeply intertwined when they were all part of the Soviet Union, uh, everything from energy interdependence to transportation infrastructure and so forth and so on. And they're using that uh, to a fairly well. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, corruption is endemic uh, in Russia, and it's actually used as an instrument of state power. And that's true in many of the neighboring uh, states uh, as, uh, as well. But it goes, it goes beyond that. Uh, I think that, uh, while you can tell, I'm in general uh, uh, a fan of what uh, has been happening under the flag of Europe. I'm also quite critical of some things that have been happening in Europe, and I think uh, uh, closing, if not shutting and locking the door uh, to Turkey uh, is a strategic error of uh, huge uh, implications for Europe, and it affects our security as well. And it is no accident that relations between Turkey and Russia, which have not historically been very good, uh, are doing a lot better now. Uh, I was uh, not uh, long ago on the uh, Turkish coast and was fascinated to see the number of, uh, sign, a number of signs in Russian, a lot of Russian tourists, a lot of Russian business being done there. I know that uh, the Georgians in particular are worried about what they call a Moscow-Ankara axis developing that would make it harder for them, the Georgians, to integrate uh, with the West. So, yeah, that, uh, you know, geopolitics lives. It's not the end of history. <laughs> what do we do about it? Though? What do we do about it? Well, uh, we start by increasing the extent to which other countries want us to do something about it, which is to say we restore our respect in their eyes and uh, their willingness uh, to follow us. I think one of the difficulties with American foreign policy since uh, a group of people who believed in a favorable sense in an American imperium uh, came to positions of, uh, positions of, in, in some cases, uh, successors to people like Joe Krusel, 
and the civilian offices at the Pentagon. One of the problems is that we have forgotten the distinction between being a boss and being a leader. And around the world, uh, there are a lot of people who see us uh, on the wrong side of that uh, distinction. So a big thing that we and the, and the Russians have been very, very good at exploiting that. Uh, I'm sure all of you recall, because it got a lot of press at the time, uh, last spring's uh, security conference in Ver at Verkunda uh, in Munich, at which uh, Putin gave a very bellicose uh, speech and really lit into the United States. And Bob Gates uh, delivered a muted, very politic, uh, effective reply. And that was more or less the story. Uh, I had some pals who were there. And they said the headline, or at least the subhead, on that story should have been, there were a lot of nodding heads around the room while Putin was speaking. And I don't mean by his sycophants or uh, satellites. I'm talking about people from Western Europe. So we've gotten ourselves into a terrible fix just in terms of our ability to play geopolitics uh, with a Russia that is going to be quite uh, assertive for quite some time to come. It's a very good question. I don't know, and I hope so. And I hope it's not. And I hope it's not a partisan issue. Uh, I spend um, Brookings is a nonpartisan uh, organization. I spend a lot of my own time on Capitol Hill talking with Republicans. I won't name names uh, because uh, it's just not uh, the right time to be doing that. But I can tell you that there are some prominent and very experienced Republicans who are very worried about many of the points that I have made here and who would be supportive not only of uh, uh, adhering to the Geneva Conventions, which have to do primarily with the treatment of prisoners of war, but also the uh, UN Torture Convention, uh, but who, uh, who would support uh, the uh, uh, reconsideration or ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty and would re also be prepared to revisit the issue of the International Criminal Court. That, that, that one will take real heavy lifting, those of you who know the issue. The concern with regard to the ICC, which President Clinton had very much in mind when he signed it, but he didn't send it up for ratification because he knew it wouldn't get through. The concern was that because we do play the unique leaderly role that we do in the world, and, you know, uh, Joe Krusel and Wes Clark and people like that could have been hauled up before a... Uh, uh, a court. This was the kind, this was the boogeyman, uh, in charge with war crimes uh, because of the use of NATO force, uh, killing civilians perhaps in in Bosnia or later in Kosovo, uh, and that is a real concern, and there would have to be uh, guarantees built in to protect against that. My own guess is that uh, one way to do it would be to uh, create an organic uh, relationship between the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and the UN Security Council so that the United States would, as a last resort, uh, have its veto to protect itself. But I think on the domestic front, uh, the polling indicates that while there is still a fairly high degree of fear, as there should be, about the danger of terrorism, uh, there is less tolerance 
for some of the stuff that has been revealed recently uh, that looks like uh, it's not just uh, prudent police work, but it actually is uh, invading the privacy of American citizens. That's what some of the polling suggests. Can I ask you to explore a little bit more this um, unprecedented unilateralism that's the repudiation of the 11 past presidents? And I guess I have a two-part question, one backward-looking and one forward-looking. Um, backward-looking, so how did it happen so fast and so much of a repudiation? I mean, you describe it as before 9-11, within the first nine months. Um, so that's very quick. And with some um, people in high office who had been in high office in predecessor administrations, including you know, the Ford administration or the Nixon administration. So they had you know, government experience under presidents who had not repudiated that American bipartisan commitment to multilateralism. So, so you know, on a more microscopic level, so how did it shift? And, and therefore, switching to forward looking, does that mean we as a nation need some internal uh, architectural mechanisms to prevent that kind of, uh, of fast movement of that, of that kind. Um, and, the, and the other part of the forward looking is, given how disastrous it's been, if that is a, a, a consensus view now in Washington, maybe not a universal view, but a large consensus view in Washington, can we be confident that whoever holds the position of presidency, you know, um, the 44th president, that that we will have a, a return to the multilateralism, um, not merely the minor course correction that you described. Well, you've asked a cluster of questions. The only easy answer I have to one of them is that uh, is is not a happy answer, maybe from your standpoint. I do not see any way to build in a guarantee uh, against this happening again. Because, you know, we're a democracy, right? And, you know, people uh, run for office, and if they get elected to high enough office, they're in a position to appoint people, and those people are held responsible to the president in this case, and if the president likes what they're doing. Uh, now, you know, there's always the issue of the Supreme Court. That's another lunch, as we say in Washington. Uh, whether the people that the president uh, appoints and the policies they carry out are going to be uh, approved by the Supreme Court or not. But, no, we really don't have uh, – I, I cannot see a, a reform of the way we govern ourselves that will protect us from uh, this happening again. What I can hope for, though, is that uh, the consequences, the results of this experiment in, in, in unilateralism having been as disastrous as they clearly have been, that that in itself will serve as a kind of, will have a cautionary effect as we go forward. But I can tell you, I've got a lot of friends uh, from Europe, uh, and when I say, and not just personal friends, but they represent countries that are very friendly to the United States, and I've seen them, including in the last week. And one theme that comes out in those conversations is, yeah, you know, we're all looking forward to 2009, and we have our hopes. And I say, yes, but you, I think you can hope that if it's a Republican president, a Republican president would be more moderate uh, as well. And they say, okay, okay, yes, we know Strobe and so forth. They said, but how do we know you people aren't going to do this again? If the son, uh, if the son of the George Bush, who took us into Iraq in 1991 and who did so so brilliantly 
using all the instrumentalities of the international system and leader, American leadership at its best. Could, if, the, if his son could do this to us in Iraq, how do we know it won't happen again? And I don't have a perfect answer for that, obviously. Now, why did it happen? Uh, take it as either a forehanded uh, insult or a backhanded compliment. <laughs> but it had a lot to do with uh, a profession or a species well represented in this room, which is intellectuals, academics, uh, the so-called neocons. And it's not my favorite phrase because I think it, it's imprecise. There was a group of very, very smart people with a lot of experience in universities who had a chance to try out their theories in practice. And they were very well represented in this administration uh, early on and implanted uh, in that administration a set of attitudes and a kind of certitude about how the world could work, the results of which uh, we now see. I have made a lot of mistakes analytically looking backwards in my career, and I've sure made a lot more mistakes trying to apply what I knew and look forward. I've never made a bigger mistake than my prediction of what sort of foreign policy George W. Bush would have. I thought that because he was Bush's son, because Colin Powell was Secretary of State, uh, that uh, because Condi Rice was National Security Advisor, I said, okay, there are going to be changes, and there'll be a lot of talk at the beginning about how we're not doing things the Clinton way and so forth and so on, but we'll stay on the main course. Boy, was I wrong. And now, now that I have the wisdom of hindsight, I look back at the people who didn't come into the administration. The way Jim Baker was discarded instantaneously after helping out in Florida. The fact that Brent Scowcroft not only was not used, but was abused. Uh, I think that there were, there were a lot of warning signs uh, fairly early on. And here's a counterfactual for you. Uh, how discredited would the experiment in unilateralism be today if it weren't for the war in Iraq? If the Bush administration had decided to really clean up in Afghanistan and take those resources that were already being kind of repositioned to take down Saddam Hussein and use them to, to get to extinguish al-Qaeda insofar as that's possible. And, and make uh, Afghanistan a kind of model of a state that was taken out of darkness and set up as a model for the region. We'd be looking at a very different world. George, George Bush wouldn't have as much control over who, who his successor is going to be as Vladimir Putin is going to have, <laughs> but uh, he would start, there would be a lot of speculation in the paper today about, well, you know, who's going to get the nod from, from President Bush to succeed him, and that is not the dynamic in the Republican Party today. So our classes start at 1.30. So, so this class is over. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on the shelf at the campus. Okay. Thank you very much.